This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 14, Dyatlov Pass. In the winter of 1959, Nine hikers met their fate while hiking through the Ural Mountains, a site that would later be renamed after one of the hikers. The harsh, bitter cold wasn't the only cause for concern, as each member's death remains a mystery to this day. For over 30 years, the details of the incident were kept under lock and key till the Russian government finally released information to the general public. This is the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. In January of 1959, nine students of the Ural Polytechnical Institute of Sverdlovsk, alongside an ex-military friend, sought out to hike through the Siberian wilderness. Each member of the group was an experienced hiker with the grade 2 rating provided by the institute they all attended. The group's overall goal was to reach the Otorted Mountain. This trip would take them over nearly 300 miles of terrain in the dead of winter. The group was led by Igor Dyatlov, a radio engineer and born to lead, a very respected man despite his young age. To many, it was an honor to be part of Igor's hikes. This particular trip would yield a grade 3 certification in hiking for all those in attendance, the highest qualification in the country at that time. If completed, each member of the group would be able to teach their craft something that they all aspired to do. On the evening of January 23rd, they all stood on the platform of the Sverdlovs train station, determined and excited to embark on their journey mostly with eyes set on the prize that would be their new certification. Unbeknownst to them, this would be the last hike that they would ever take. At the end of the trip, nine out of the ten members would never return. Out of sheer luck, Yuri Yudin's past health issues would catch up to him, cutting his trip short due to falling ill. They caught the 9.05 p.m. train from Sverdlovsk, taking them over 200 miles north to Sarov. The train ride was roughly 11 hours in length, with them arriving at 7.39 a.m. the next morning. Upon reaching Sarov, the group spent part of the day catching up on sleep and entertaining children at a nearby school. In the evening, they caught another train that would take them an additional 100 miles further north to Ivdel, 
They arrived around midnight. After a six-hour wait, they finally caught a bus at 6 a.m. for Vizay on January 25th. The next day, they continued their trip, traveling further north to an area known only as Sector 41. It was there that they would spend the night and continue their journey the next day. At roughly 4 p.m. the following day, they traveled up the frozen Lavza River throughout the evening and into the night, and arrived in an abandoned geological site early the next morning. It was at this point in the trip, Yuri Yudin would have to return home. After parting with their friend, the rest of the group continued on with their trip. A saddened Yuri stood, watching his friend ski away. Little did he know, this is the last time he would ever see them alive. On January 29th, the real trip commenced. The hard work would finally begin as they made the rest of their way towards the Otorden Mountain on foot. They continued throughout the day till stopping to set up camp for the night. The next day they headed west, following the Ospia River, all the way up to the base of an unnamed mountain, marked on maps as Height 1079. This mountain would later be renamed the Dead Mountain. This is where they would set up camp and store gear to further their trip. By February 1st, the harsh bitter cold would start to set in, slowing their progress. Due to low visibility, their group would end up off course and higher up height 1079. That night, Igor decided this was the best place to set up camp, so they did not lose progress that they had already made. This was also due to daylight quickly fading. As an extra challenge, Igor wanted to practice camping on a mountain slope to challenge himself and his group. The group settled into their tent by 5.30pm. From there, the group worked on a mock paper together titled The Evening O'Torton. This paper was a humorous report on their activities over the last few days and served as a team-building exercise. The group also took photographs throughout the day and while setting up the camp, showing everyone in high spirits and determined to reach their goals. Despite the positive drive of the group, whatever happened over the next few hours would remain a mystery and would go on to be known as what is now as preferred to as the Dyatlov Pass incident. No one knows for sure exactly what happened, and no one will probably ever know. Due to collected evidence and piecing things together, authorities would determine that at some point throughout the night of February 1st, something would scare the group of hikers so much that they would cut their way out of their tent and venture into the bitter cold night, barefoot, and then little to no clothing. All nine members of the group would meet their fate. Some of them died from hypothermia, and some suffered horrific injuries, those of which no one has ever been able to explain to this day, despite many theories that have surfaced since. Igor and the rest of the hikers were due to return to Sverdlovsk on February 13th, but no one had heard or seen them. This wasn't of immediate concern due to delays being normal, and Igor telling Yuri Yudin that they may take longer than expected. As the days progressed, families of the hikers started to show their concern. By February 15th, they expected some form of communication or telegram explaining their delay, 
but nothing was ever received. On February 20th, five days later, the families demanded a rescue operation be set up in order to locate their loved ones. Search parties were then set up consisting of family members, fellow university students, and teachers alike. On February 26th, one of the students by the name of Mikhail Shuravin, along with a close friend, found the abandoned tent on the slopes of the Dead Mountain, also known as Kalat Siakul, at an altitude of 800 meters. By this time, the tent had collapsed and was badly damaged, with a large cut in the side of the canvas. Uncovering the tent from the snow, they found many of the group's belongings, but could not find any trace of the hikers themselves. The rescue party then set up camp for the night, feeling optimistic that they were close to locating their friends. The next day, on February 27th, the true horror of the incident would begin to unfold. From the camp, the group of rescuers discovered at least eight sets of footprints heading down the slope towards the edge of a set of woods at the base of the mountain. The tracks seemed to disappear about 500 meters, most likely masked by snow. At the edge of the tree line, they discovered the remnants of a small fire beneath a cedar tree. The rescuers also noticed the branches of the cedar tree had been broken or snapped off completely up to five meters up the tree, as if someone had broken them or had actually climbed the tree itself. It was at this point the body of Yuri Doroshenko was found underneath the cedar tree, close to where the fire was held previously. He had minor cuts and bruises all over his body. His nose, lips, and one of his ears were all covered in dried blood. Additionally, his upper lip was swollen, suggesting that he had been hit in the mouth. They also discovered a gray-like foam substance on his cheek, possibly suffering from a pulmonary edema. His right temple and one of his feet had been burned, but despite all previous injuries, his death was ruled as hypothermia. The next body they found, situated next to Doroshenko, was Yuri Kravonashenko. Minor bruises and cuts were found on his abdomen and various limbs. The tip of his nose was missing. There was a piece of flesh that had been torn off the knuckle on the back of his left hand, which was later found to be in his mouth. His death was also ruled as hyperthermia. Further up the slope, the rescue team discovered the body of Igor Dyatlov, the leader of the group, roughly 300 meters from the cedar tree. He was found face up and covered in snow. Both his hands were clasped together in front of him, with his arms against his chest. He was discovered with multiple bruises and cuts. Blood was found on his lips, and he was missing teeth in his lower jaw. A coroner confirmed the injury on Igor's hands were incurred during a fist fight. As with the previously found bodies, Igor's death was ruled as death by hypothermia. The group was able to locate one additional body that day, the body of Zineda Kolmogorova. Her body was discovered face down, approximately 630 meters away from the originally found cedar tree. As with the others, her body was found with cuts and bruises. She had a foot-long bruise in her lower back, suggesting 
that she was physically hit in the area. Several days went by with no further discoveries of the hikers. On March 5th, Rustam Slobodin's body was discovered. He was found face down, roughly 480 meters from the cedar tree, between Igor and Zaneda. They discovered he was wearing one felt boot on his right foot. Along with minor cuts and bruises on his body, he had fractured his skull. Later determined the injury was not severe enough to cause his death, the coroner ruled his death by hypothermia as well. It wasn't until two months later that the other bodies of the hikers were found. It was at this point that the snow had began to melt, revealing their cold, dead bodies. A member of the Mansi tribe by the name of Kurikov noticed cut branches forming a trail which led away roughly 75 meters into the woods behind the cedar tree. A six-meter-deep ravine was discovered. In the ravine, a pair of black cotton pants were found. On May 5th, a group of rescuers dug out the ravine, only to discover the remaining four bodies, buried beneath four meters of snow. It was later discovered only one of the four had died from hypothermia. It was assumed that these four had taken clothes from the previously found victims to attempt to survive the harsh temperatures. Along with the hikers, the group of rescuers discovered a small den that suggested the four hikers lived a while longer while hiding in the ravine. Alexander Kolevitov was the only member of the four hikers that died of hypothermia. He was also discovered with a broken nose, deformed neck, and missing his eyes and the tissues around them. There was a large open wound behind his left ear, and parts of his clothing were found to be radioactive. Next to Kolevitov, rescuers found the body of Alexander Zolotaryov. The two were found embracing each other in an almost spooning position. Zolotaryov was the oldest of the group and had already achieved his grade 3 certification. It was found that he had died due to a crushing injury to his chest. All of the bones in his right ribcage had been fractured. He also had a deep, open wound on the right side of his head. So deep, his skull had been exposed. He was also missing his eyes and eyelids. The rescuers discovered him with a pen in his right hand and a piece of paper in his left, but had most likely died before getting to write anything down. Nikolai Thibault Brignolez was found roughly two meters from the other two. He had died from massive impact to his skull, with multiple fractures to the temporal bone. The last body to be discovered was that of Ludmila Dubanina, just a meter away from the other three bodies. Her body was found in the worst state among the whole group. She suffered an injury to her chest, breaking all but eight of her ribs. Her eyes, tongue, and soft issues around her mouth and eyelids were missing. The coroner found a large amount of blood in her stomach, suggesting her tongue had been removed while still alive. On top of everything else, her clothes were found to be radioactive. It was later discovered that small amounts of radiation were found around Dyatlov Pass. The coroner later revealed the injuries of the three were caused by more than just being hit by a blunt object. The types of injuries that they experienced were similar to a car accident or an explosion, inflicted at high speeds and with a large amount of pressure.
Authorities and rescue teams were at a loss as to what had happened. To them it made no sense for a group of experienced hikers to suffer such a grave disaster. From what they were able to gather and put together, it is believed the group cut through the back of their tent and fled quickly. This was further solidified by the zipper on the front of the tent still being fully secured and closed. With the group leaving in such urgency, they left all of their belongings behind, those of which could have ultimately saved their lives. Upon investigating the tracks and footprints in the snow, it was easy to determine that the hikers fled quickly, making large, staggered strides in the snow. Following the tracks down the mountain, as they inched closer to the base, the footprints became more uniform. It would appear the group slowed down, walking nearly in single file. Despite setting up a small fire, it was ultimately not enough for those in the group, and far less clothing than the others. This is where hypothermia started to quickly set in. The investigators were able to safely assume someone had climbed the cedar tree to attempt to survey the scene and judge the safety of their camp. This was determined by many of the limbs of the tree being snapped or broken off. At this time, it is believed some of the hikers attempted to make their way back to camp. The others stayed back to assist those developing hypothermia in hopes the hikers would return with provisions and clothing to assist the rest of the group. Unfortunately, the three that had attempted to return to camp perished before they could get there. From there, the other hikers still at the base of the mountain decided to descend further into the forest in hopes it would help them keep safe from the harsh wind and the bitter cold. It is believed this is where the three of the remaining hikers fell into the ravine, suffering extreme injuries due to the extent of the fall and where the other had died from hypothermia. Although the investigators felt they had established an understanding and a strong prediction of what had happened, there was still no explanation for what had caused the hikers to leave their tent in such a hurry. Leaving everything behind. The only possible explanation would be a catastrophic event at the campsite disturbing the group so much that they had to flee abruptly. Over 60 years have passed since the Dyatlov Pass incident, and we are still struggling to piece together the events that took place that night in the Ural Mountains. There is no explanation strong enough to defend what would cause such reckless behavior that would ultimately lead to the group's demise. Although many theories have surfaced, that is all that they will ever be. One thing is for certain. We may never truly know what happened to the nine hikers, as they made their trek over the Dyatlov Pass. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. Dude, I am hyped for this one. Good. Good. Yeah, that's what I like it to is hear. Like, it is like pure speculation. Exactly. We don't, we don't have anything that we could, we're basing this off of. It's completely just yeah just utter way that we we perceive the story right yep no i love cases like this because occam's razor just doesn't apply you know the most simple solution is most likely the solution right there is no simple solution here there's many possible yeah none of the theories none of the theories offered satisfy every detail of the case 
None. I agree. I agree. And that's where, you know, we, we kind of come into, you know, what, what actually happened. You know, yeah, what I mean, do we I know think actually happened? Right. We, I mean, we both have probably a list of theories. So, let, I mean, let's start the speculation. So, one thing I do want to note. When the group fell into the ravine, um, it is, uh, you know, it is believed that those that went into the ravine actually safely made it to the bottom. They didn't just fall, you know, like, sure, uh, they like in the there. story kind of, kind of suggests, right? Um, but at that time, it's believed that they were crushed by a collapse of snow and ice that fell from above them, too, causing some of their injuries. Right. But was it? That's a solid question. Exactly. I, I mean, there I want to hear what you of, think. Um, yeah. Well, there are a lot. There's lots of speculation about like um, snow slabs, right? Where like it's sort of like an avalanche, except one, like an entire massive chunk of of solidified snow slides down and stays in one piece, okay, and crushes things. So something like that maybe happened once they were in the ravine. Because so they were buried. That's, My that's question talking is about does, in the ravine itself, not not right. their actual campsite, not the incident no. that led to. Okay, yeah, that's I. You know, I I think that that's it's a possibility. Um, the issue that I have with that is um, as and as I was kind of doing some digging, there was a a doctor. Um, I'm trying to trying to find it specifically, but basically stated that. Even even chunks of snow and ice or, you know, a slab of snow falling onto them would not have such an impact that they suffered. Right. Um, you know, as, as I explained in the story, they had suffered such a, you know, such a, uh, you know, such a, like a, a high impact, a high impact, you know, to a high impact degree, you know, mm-hmm. like that resembling of a car crash or right. an explosion. It was that harsh, you know, even a slab of snow, even regardless of the weight and everything. I mean, you know, given, given the weight, yeah, I'm sure it could, it could probably do some damage, but I don't know that it would actually result in that high of an impact on their bodies causing, you know, such the, you know, such a, uh, you know, wide array of just different injuries at that point. Right. Yeah. So my thing, my thing about the snow slab idea or the avalanche idea, if you think about the leading edge of that snow slab, right? If you think about that sort of like a blade, okay? If you... Okay, okay let me rewind. Okay, so the, the woman that was part of the group in the ravine was... Um, what was her name? It doesn't matter. The w- uh, <laughs> I need to know this. Um, <laughs> Russian is hard. It really is. No, but so regardless, I think her, her name yes. was Ludmila. Was yeah, one it of was. Them. It was like was uh, yeah, it was uh, Ludmila Duba, Dubanina. There we go. Okay, so I was looking at. Okay, so her and one of the men, they had I almost identical injuries. Like, other than the tongue and eyes, right? But, like, the abrasions, the bruising 
Uh, was, all was of them very had, similar, right? right? All of them had cuts and cuts and bruises, uh, right? Know, but these two specifically were in like in almost identical places, right? And okay, so if you think about the leading edge of the snow slab or avalanche, like a <clears throat> like a blade, these two people are very different statures, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. and if that crashes into both of them at the same time. It's not going to injure them in the same places. True. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, one, because, and I didn't have the exact, like, height, you know, height uh, height and weight of of each person and everything as well, which makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, you have a six six foot two person and the five, a person that's five three, you know, it's going to hit them at different, different angles and different areas, right? And that's about how that's about the difference between these two people that had very similar right injuries. So, like, I'll go back to my you know my old example of Shaquille O'Neal and Danny DeVito. Right? If they're standing, <laughs> if they're standing next to each other, and uh, Shaquille's like, gonna get sh- hit first, right? Well, if they're if they're standing next to each other and a you know a blade comes by at four feet. You know, it's going to cut Danny DeVito's chest and True. it's going to cut Shaquille O'Neal's thighs. Yeah. You yeah, understand right. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's it's odd to me. I think that that rules out like one giant slab of snow colliding into both of them at the same time. I agree. And the thing with uh, Ludmila, she also had far worse injuries than the the other eight people. Right. You know, at that point, she had suffered, uh, you know, her, what, all but eight of her, her ribs being broken, her right. eyes, tongue, and then and all the the tissues around her mouth and her eyes being ripped out, basically, you know, yeah. which there's a lot that you can chalk that up to, you know, yeah. and, you know, you can even, you can even chalk that up to, like, animals and in this yep. forest, you know. Predation. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, chomping away. Uh, at the bits after after they're dead you know vultures they do the same type of thing um but their bodies are going to be preserved with how cold you know how cold the temperatures are Um, i know i know a lot of the like soft tissue loss in their faces like the the end of the nose being missing and Mm -hmm. stuff like that is consistent with frostbite with long-term frostbite yeah yeah so that explains a lot of that, but I honestly, I don't, I mean, do you want, do we want to talk avalanche? So I was going right to say, away? that was what I was going to say. So when it comes to their campsite, so the first initial issue of the incident causing them to flee, um, you know, one of the most suggested theories is an avalanche, right? Um, you know, basically, uh, you know, at that point, uh, basically, an avalanche causing causing them to just rush out, try and cut through, just get out of the way. But yeah, there is a problem with that theory, though, because uh, due to the um, you know the slope of the mountain that they were on wasn't nearly steep enough for an avalanche to actually pose a threat. Um, you know, and at this point, you know, you have Igor. Dyatlov being the the leader of the group, you also have um, the other older one. Which I can't think of the name of him right away, 
the guy uh, who was already, already with his three. grade three. You know, those two would have would have been able to assess the degree to where they are they are camping. I mean, sure. granted, you know, part of part of them trying to achieve this this higher certificate, they're going to try and you know they're they're required to go through extreme circumstance. Right. Yeah, you know, which is why they why they set up camp on the side of a slope on this mountain. But yeah. at the same time, if there was the threat of an avalanche, you know, at least one of those two would have assessed it and made sure not to set up there. Uh um, yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. You know, and so to kind of further though, with the avalanche, if it actually happened, it would have covered the entire campsite in snow. And would have also covered the tracks of the hikers as they were leading away. Sure. That's why a lot of people think that the avalanche happened. They were on the very edge of the avalanche and then they just happened. That's to what caused miss the it. injuries. Well, they were just like right at the edge, like you said. They, this was like a a lower grade, right? So the avalanche right. would slow down when it got to that point and but my thing about that is if the avalanche caused the the injuries, there's no way they would have been able to dig themselves out. Right. Of course. Nor was there any evidence of them digging themselves out. They were no, walked not at they all. walked slowly away from the camp. I mean, you have you have so the first set of footprints are just very staggered. They were quickly uh, running. And you right. can you can tell due to like the staggered you know design in their in their footprints. But as sure. they get slow, as they work their way down this this steep this slope, you know the the footprints become more uniform, and at that point they yeah. slowly become you know start to part into one, to where it suggests that they were walking single file at that point. Right, you know, I've and read that even calm and patient at that point. You know, so yeah. if you're, I've read that there was even evidence that like some of them were like being sure to step into the footprints of the person in front of them. Like, that's that's a possibility, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where that's where I think like the idea of the avalanche. There's a lot more that that would have caused. Um, you know, again, snow covering covering their tracks. Um, at least some part of the avalanche reaching their campsite and covering their campsite. I mean. You know, later on down the line, when they when they find it, yeah, some of their their you know some of their supplies and everything are under snow. That's due to normal normal snowfall. Snowfall, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that would have been very easy to tell if it was you know caused by an avalanche. Right. So I mean, I I have to imagine that's true. An avalanche is a pretty severe. It's event, gonna be very right? significant, right? For sure. Like most, I would I would imagine most people familiar with the landscape would be able to tell just approaching the area. Oh, there's been an avalanche here lately, or recently. You know, like that would be a thing that they could that they would know based that, on the way the snow was laying. And you know, yeah. someone someone that's an experienced hiker or even an an, an instructor. You know, like teaching hiking is gonna know to look for these things. They're gonna, they're sure. gonna there's gonna be telltale signs that are gonna be able to be very evident. You know, once they reach these points. Yeah, and so, and that's where you know Igor and the other, being you know being sound and also so you know so in depth their their craft in this case, 
you know, would have right. been able to would have been able to see that too. They would have known, you know, if if it was a prime area for a possible avalanche, or if it was a very minimal possibility. You know, and, and I, I definitely believe that. You know, it's, you know, obviously they're gonna they're gonna know their stuff a lot more than the common person. Right. Oh, definitely. Like, so I think I don't think either of us are buying the avalanche. I yeah, not at all. I I don't think that's possible. Like I said, there's just too much that would would have to have been a thing that wasn't in order for that to even be a possibility. Right. Um, Agreed. So then the question is, what caused them to cut their way out of their tent and take off running? So another possible theory states that the Russian military was actually testing weapons in the area. Uh, so basically, at that point, the Air Force was dropping floating mines. Uh, so okay. think of think of uh, of explosives with parachutes uh, that would essentially detonate roughly, uh, you know, what a couple meters, a meter, a couple meters off the ground. Right. And so, say they happen to be doing so at that time, drop it close to the campsite. Maybe one of the members was outside at the time. Um, or ended up getting, you know, uh, ended up getting injured by this, and so you know they book it because they're they're in this, you know, this area that's obviously being, you know, being bombed. Uh, right. You know, if if that's the case, any any sound person, any sane person is gonna they're gonna book it. They're gonna make sure that they, you know, they flee from an area that they're gonna possibly be getting, you know, injured or uh, ex- blown up, I guess. Right. You know, and so that would that would also chalk up to why they left so quickly. Um, but yeah, so, so I mean that could also because we haven't even talked about the photographs, right? right? Because there's everyone always talks about the final the final photo on the roll, right? With the like with the bright light streaking across the photo, right? So like. A bomb like that might explain that. Yeah, it maybe very that's well could. what that photo was. Exactly. You know, it could have been of because I mean, it, you have you have these uh, these explosives being dropped or these mines being dropped. They're going to cause a bright flash. Of course, you know. So that that very well could have been what was captured because uh, there were a couple photos. Uh, one most more notable one, which we'll make sure we actually get posted, um, yeah. that shows this bright white, you know, bright orb uh, with this just streak of of light, right? You know, which would that could be, you know, think of like a flashbang, yeah. right? You have you have the area of impact; it's gonna be your brightest area, and you're gonna have streaks of of light that are gonna uh, branch out of that. There's gonna be like a fallout essentially. Yep. Um, you know that's going to be just as bright, but it's it's not going to be nearly as much as the point of impact. So right. that's yeah, that's a definite possibility, for sure. Um, and I think that's more, uh, in my opinion, I think that's more believable than an avalanche. Um, yeah. You know, because in this area, it was it was known that the military did do. Uh, they did do uh, weapon testing. It was right. it was known that in this area they did actually do that, and for them to be you know testing, uh, you know testing these floating mines and things like that wasn't wasn't out of the ordinary. It wasn't. It's not far fetched to you know assume that that's po- a possibility of why you know why they did what they did or you know what yeah. had actually happened. 
No, that's... I mean, it was basically... It was basically SOP for the Soviet military to be testing weapons there. Yeah, Yeah. it was a very, very common place. And even according to, like, the Mansu tribe, they confirmed, you know, they they are... They do test weapons. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, before we get, like... Before we get, like you know spooky really because i know yeah. we will <laughs> um i mean let's talk other you know other natural occurrences because there's okay. also like catabatic winds right which is uh-huh. another another theory where the air rushes down like a mountainside and they've been recorded at like hurricane force winds yeah coming down oh yeah the and thing- it's gnarly for sure yeah my thing with that is, like, wouldn't their gear be spread out all over the place if something exactly. like that happened? Yep. Wouldn't their That's... tent be, like, you know, 80 meters downhill? I mean, unless they've secured that shit as, <laughs> as tight as possible. Right. Which, you know, if you're setting up camp on the side of a slope, you know, I doubt it's going to be that secure. It's, it's going to be pretty right. secure. They know what they're doing. Right. But it's not going to be so secure that, you know, like... Especially it wins that to that degree are gonna are far more surpass what they could be prepared for. Yeah, I mean, unless we're talking grade two hikers, grade twenty five, you know, tent spikers. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's a thing. No, that's like that's always what I think of though about the wind. Like, yeah, it's it would have destroyed everything. It would have like it Without would have scattered doubt, all of their gear all over the mountainside, right? And there, and from the description, when the the first rescue team, the two people that initially went out and found the mm-hmm. campsite, they you know just under a little bit of snow, uh, just part of it, just from natural snowfall, found the campsite completely untouched, even yep. with their boots, everything literally sitting out in front of the tent, perfectly uniformed line, you know, so. Given this wind, I would expect that to be far worse. They would they would be finding different things, you know, here and there, and it would it would definitely not be in one single single campsite for sure. Yeah, agreed. So I think that one's rolled out as well. I think so too, and I mean, it, and also going on the natural, uh, you know, natural possibilities. Uh, there was also a theory that suggested. Um, it was due to naturally caused infrasound. Yeah. Uh, so basically, for those who don't know, infrasound or infrasound is a, a ultra low frequency sound. Um, basically, it's just a sound wave that can cause extreme negative effects on on humans. Um, right. It can cause nausea. It can cause uh, it can cause even even hallucinations to a higher degree. Yep. Panic. Um, it can cause panic and just a, a feeling of just not feeling right um you know so uh it is believed though that um you know it's it's possible that in this case with everything perfectly lined um you know if the conditions were basically just right the smooth slopes would be the perfect conductors for uh these infra uh, infrasound sound waves to manifest right. um and, you know which would essentially could cause 
basically the group to be convinced that something bad was going to happen or that they were in, you know, that they were being harmed or right, the possibility of harm was impending. Right. Um, and then causes them to leave in such a, you know, rash, a haste, you know, uh, with, with haste and like, you know, not, not thinking about the consequences, you know, right. basically by that time, you know, maybe they realized that they were, they made an error and it wasn't actually that. And by that time it was too late. Right. And then they couldn't find their way back. Exactly. But the issue with that is that infrasound affects different people in different ways. Yeah. Not you, nine you, people the exact same way. You may have John over here that it makes it gives him a tummy ache. And then you have Bill over here. He has a headache. And then you have yep. Sally. She didn't even notice anything. Yeah. You know, there could be a hundred Sally's that never didn't even realize, you know, nothing, nothing ever affected them. So the yeah. fact that everyone, you know, it would suggest that everyone experienced this exact same reaction. You know, there's no way for that to possibly happen. I mean, if the infrasound is, is so intense, like, you know, cause we think of infrasound because, you know, we're a little bit in the business of infrasound because it's right. commonly used in low levels in like horror film scores I mean, and, we used it in you know, our, our we use trailer. A little in our, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's you know, it's placed below to make the listener or the viewer a little bit uneasy mm-hmm. when you want your viewer to feel a little uneasy. Exactly. But, so that's how we think of it. But imagine that effect magnified, say, a hundred times over. Imagine like an infrasound so low and so at such a high volume. That maybe at that level it does affect more people the same way. I mean, that's that's a possibility for sure. And again, there would have had to been so many conditions that were just right, you know, right? Like so many things to line up to cause such a high degree and such a reaction that I just I don't buy it. I, yeah. I don't think that it, you know. I mean, it, granted those low infrasounds like we've both listened to them and we both had that feeling of un yes. you know of being uneasy because yeah. if it's done properly it it, it could i mean it can literally cause just just a weird feeling and it's extremely hard to describe but yeah you know, no so. I've, I've while we were testing them i listened to one of the one of the lower ones and about 30 seconds in i felt like i was gonna throw up yeah, like yeah, it I mean, definitely, it's effective. Oh, I, I know, and when we were doing it as well, like just listening to it, it made my head hurt so bad. Like I developed such a bad headache just because the sound. It's it's not even like a rumble. It's like a, it's almost like just a, a steady, steady like it. Not even a pulse. I, again, I don't really know how to explain it. It just With, goes it inside just, of you. It, it, it really does. It feels it's, like penetrating. It's you know, weird. So I think like. It's convincing. It's a definitely convincing theory, but like I said, with the fact that everyone would have to experience the same type of reaction, and there's no way to know. Well, there's no way to know for sure. You know, if it was the same reaction, it could have been a higher degree. You know, like you were stating. Yeah, but like you just said, like we just said, the when I listened to it, it made me nauseated. When you listened to it, you got a headache. Right. Everyone reacts differently. Right. 
So that's that's where that one just doesn't doesn't it doesn't sit right with me. I I you know as as compelling as it is, and as convincing you know as a possibility. I sure just, I don't think it it holds up. Right. No. When when people say it, it sounds real. You know, but when you like dig into it, it there are definitely some weak points. Like I said at the beginning. I mean, I hope the listeners aren't expecting any like solid conclusions here because literally no theory satisfies everything. Unfortunately, 60 years in the making at this point, there's, there's never been any actual conclusion, right? You know, it's, it's all theories. And so that's where, that's where, you know, why we are, where we are trying to kind of, you know, trying to piece this together because, you know, I mean, eventually, I hope, you know, eventually for the sake of these hikers, the sake of their families, you know, everyone else involved, I hope something comes, you know, there's there's light shed on it one day. Right, some definitive but, answer. You know, I, I would say that that's, there's 99% chance that's never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, in 2019, on the 60-year anniversary of this happening, the Russian government officially reopened the investigation into it, right? And they said that out of the 75 presented theories, 75 presented theories... Which is nuts. Three three of them they were going to investigate. Just three. They said they had it narrowed down to three, and that was avalanche, snow slab, and are you ready for this? Hurricane... Yeah, I, I, I don't. There, I, the avalanche. First of all, no. Hurricane, no. Snow slab. I'll, I'll give it. I'll, I'll give it a possibility. Sure. You know, because depending on again the degree of it, the steepness of the slope, how quickly it raced down, especially if we're talking about in the ravine. Yeah. You know, and these people getting you know. The, crushed by this mix of snow and ice i mean at such a rapid rate yeah. uh, you know it it could potentially cause some of the, some of those like you know similar to a car car accident injury uh, maybe there was enough impact due to the speed and everything developing over you know over the time yeah. but as far as the camp and to cause them to you know, to run out and and you know try and flee and everything like that's that's what still just has me kind of baffled. I mean, yeah, they could they could see this or you know uh, they can hear this off in the distance and be like, oh shit, we need to get out. But why would yeah. they cut out the back of their tent first of right. all? Why would everybody leave without putting on clothes or shoes and stuff like that? Like that just doesn't make any sense. See, uh, I have a problem with that because it's often presented like like some of these people ran off in their underwear and right. i honestly don't think that happened i'm almost okay. certain i think some of them ran off without their boots for sure i think they were in a hurry enough to run off without their boots i i'm almost certain that what happened the reason why they were found unclothed was because some survived longer than others, and they took and the they clothes took the, off the dead bodies to add layers to their own. Yep, I, I agree one hundred percent. And obviously, you know, I, 
I have to kind of remain neutral a little bit, and just so we can kind of piece together the facts and everything. Sure. But yeah, that's that's I agree with that. You know, and that's why um, you know even even kind of getting into the story of the four in the ravine. You yeah. had you had the one that died by hypothermia, the other three outliving everybody, but they also had significantly more clothing on than anybody else. Yeah. And so I, I 100%, I think, I think that's the case. They, they went out, they, you know, raided the bodies, and, you know, obviously yeah. they're trying to stay alive. At that point, it's going to be just, you know, it's going to be instinct at that point. You're going to, you know, it's like survive or, or not, um, you know, so uh, your survival instinct is going to kick, di- kick in, and you're going to be looking for anything you can possibly do to help you know, keep you alive that much longer. Yeah, once now, Igor turns into a human popsicle, he's not going right. to need his t-shirt anymore. Exactly. They're your friends, but they're already gone. Like, fuck yeah. it. Why not They'd want you to survive yourself? Exactly. Exactly. And I agree with that for sure. Yeah. I don't... I mean, let's talk about Hurricane. The Russian government literally what said, we're going to investigate the possibility that this, that this place that's literally 200 miles from the nearest large body of water yeah maybe it was a hurricane i mean okay so first of all you have you have these these harsh temperatures this bitter cold wind Mm -hmm. i mean you're probably gonna have high wind rates i mean you're on a fucking mountain you know you're on a very high peak this was height what 1079 yeah um you know so uh, granted you're that that far up yeah there's there's probably gonna be pretty some, some pretty gnarly winds right but hurricane winds no fucking way they're not even like, saying hurricane winds they're saying literally uh, uh, a hurricane. hurricane so like that yeah, would be like <laughs> that would be like a hurricane a hurricane hitting the coast of Louisiana and killing a group of hikers in Nebraska yeah yeah I mean that's that's pretty damn similar right yeah um you know it, it's absurd it's 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 impossible it's definitely impossible yeah. there's no no way agreed yep so yeah i think i think that that's just a way to cover it up the russian government i feel is has been part of it they've been in on it for so long reason being is that um so there was at one point that uh this this site was actually found by uh, the Russian government before anybody else found it, before any any other hiker, you know, rescue teams or anything like that. Um, it, according according to what I read, you know, which could be wrong, you know, it could just be a, a whole conspiracy that we're un- unraveling here. No, no, no. I um, I frowned in interest, not in disbelief. So. Continue. <laughs> I'm trying to find the exact thing, just so I'm not, uh, you know, just so I'm not, you know, kind of going over. Yeah, of um, course. I'm. I'm excited to hear it. I'm. I haven't heard anything like. So, I've, basically, Yuri Yudin, the one that left uh, due to his illness and everything, KGB. believed that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Believed that his his friends discovered something that they were not supposed to see. And that they were killed by Russian special forces. Okay. Um, so, one of the lead investigators stated that the Russian military had actually found the abandoned campsite two weeks prior. 
and covered up the discovery of the tracks left by the hiker. Oh. So where the tracks ended abruptly, where it's like assumed that it was just that's, from snowfall that's what or I, wind? That's what I'm guessing. Right. That would be the one that they supposedly covered? Yeah. And so, but that being, you know, and that was one of the lead investigators that was, hmm. that was actually investigating into it. One of the authorities had stated that the Russian military had actually found this campsite two weeks before. Was this but the they same? Didn't... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say they didn't alert anyone, first of all. You know, it was kept, it was basically just hush hush. Right. No one said anything, despite these families frantically looking, um, you know, reaching out, trying to wonder, you know, guess, or you know, basically guessing and asking where their family is because they've not heard anything. They know that this group, these groups of this group of hikers are up there, but yet they don't do shit about it and they don't say anything, even though they discover this campsite. Sure. So. Was this the same lead investigator that became obsessed with, like, UFOs and wrote lots of books about UFOs? This would be the same. Okay. Which we'll get into that. Cool. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but that, no, the, that, to me, kind of stood out uh, as a, you know, I mean, obviously, my my kind of take on it is I feel that the Russian government, the Soviet, the Soviet government was, I, I feel like they're involved in some way. I mean that's the key I've, right there that it's not it wasn't the Russian government it was the Soviet government Soviet government right covering yeah. covering if they were involved in any way shape or form even if like we talked about where they were testing something and you know it led to their deaths you know yeah. not a, not purposefully um, if they were involved I mean, I, in yeah, any I would way doubt that it'd be purposely at that point you know right. but they just happened to be basically in the crossfire right Right, wrong, wrong place, wrong time. But if exactly. they were involved, you would expect the that's par for the course with a communist government to to be lock and key about everything, right? Every every activity they get into is, I mean, the Soviet Union's government was one hundred percent all about secrets. They oh, kept one, every 100% secret they could under lock and key, always. Yeah. Yep. And that's why even the incidents, the the details of this incident were kept from the general public for over 30 years. Yeah. Any details that the the Russian government, uh, Soviet government, whatever, had at that point were kept from the general public for 30 years before they were released. Yeah. And that was 59 to 89. So until the Soviet Union collapsed. The 90s. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, roughly roughly around 1990 is when the information became yeah. public. Yeah, that's when the Soviet Union collapsed and the new Russian government released the the files. Yeah. So, yeah. That like I said that to me adds a lot adds a lot to uh, kind of questioning what really happened. It also, I mean, it's easy to read into that because we we live in a society where we expect transparency from our government, right? But whether whether the situation was, you know, was insidious or not, whether they were involved right. or not, it was the default of the Soviet government to keep everything confidential. Yeah, I mean, in which our government does the same thing. 
you know. It, I mean, just not extent, to the like, same degree, right? Right, exactly. When we hear, oh, it was kept confidential, we think, well, it must be incriminating to them. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, for sure. But that's not necessarily the case in the Soviet Union. They just kept everything confidential, right? It probably would have ju- it would have been just as difficult to find out what the people in the government building ordered for lunch <laughs> as it was yeah. to find out about this I, Yeah, this you're probably right, for sure. I mean, you know, and it's, it's, it's with it being so hush hush and everything being so hush hush yeah you know it you know so i guess maybe that kind of lessens the degree to you know kind of kind of question it but still it's a little shady sure for sure that was their middle name shady (laughs) (laughs) so uh you know with keeping keeping that going um others believe that uh, the group, the group of hikers, was actually forced to leave their tent by a third party or Russian special forces. Okay. Um, or basically anyone else that didn't want them to be there. Russian special forces being one of the bigger ones. Um, okay. But the problem with that, that one again, because again, that's just another speculation theory, uh, was that there were no additional tracks that were found um, other than just the hikers themselves. Right. Also none of their belongings were taken or they weren't robbed or anything like that, you know, so I would expect, you know, if that was the case, they would probably, you know, someone would probably go back and at least take some of their provisions. Yeah. You know, given the circumstances of the area, um, you know, of this being such a harsh, harsh kind of weather, weathered environment, um, you know, so like I said, it kind of works, it kind of works off of that, but at the same time, I don't. I don't know if I if I buy into that either. The lack of footsteps, of additional footsteps, is kind of kind of puts but, me off that. Like Yuri Yuri Yudin was talking about, the Soviet government fi- discovering the campsite two weeks prior, they cleaned could have up. possibly cleaned things up exactly. Right. And then it could have been purposely, you know, purposefully not to take anything from the campsite or anything, just to continue to you know keep them out of it. Right, right. Or not draw attention or something. I know people have speculated also that maybe like the Monzi tribe could have been involved, like yeah, in a in a similar way that maybe they attacked their camp or forced them out of it. But like, they're known for being incredibly peaceful, and they helped a bunch in the searches, and they were yeah, helped, they were like, they were very. I mean, they they also made sure to note like the different things that they you know that they had seen and you know the different practices that were around the area because they were so familiar with it. Right, they were very helpful in the investigation. Exactly. Um, there was another thing. Uh, I guess another one that I thought was kind of silly, but maybe possible because we got Igor with a busted lip. Uh, you know, but it basically punched in the mouth and, and right. things like that, right? Um, we have some people with some broken ribs, uh, you know, things like that. So there's another possible theory that it was a uh, basically just an incident that was caused by a conflict with a couple of the group members. Yeah. Um, you know, something went down. Um, there were, uh, you know, especially one of the girls of the group, which this is, and this is not, you know, not trying to be sexist or anything like in that regard, 
you know, but you have this this girl that she was known for being very pretty. A lot of the group members had had uh, had basically admitted to having a crush on her. You know, she was right. she was you know she yeah she was she was very much desired by a lot of the group members. So maybe some um, kind of love triangle formed, possibly, and that's that's kind of what I was thinking. You know, just the fact that uh, you know maybe this this broke out. And maybe she was talking to this person, and this person was very into her, but so maybe was this person. And right. then it just became this big spat between, you know, between the group that just caused this whole, this whole big you know, confrontation and this big conflict. Maybe something happened, and you know, someone got a little too aggressive. Uh, maybe they cut through the tent or something you know something something it just sure. you know trying to trying to like piece things <laughs> together um you know by just kind of guessing but maybe that's what it was maybe they didn't actually escape through the the back of the tent maybe they had all went outside and then you know i don't it's it's honestly it's hard to say uh, i mean you know, because a, a conflict like that can split a group in half too Oh, for sure. For so, sure. So like half of the people take this guy's side, half of the people take that guy's side. Like we're going this way, you go that way. Like I but could see what, something like that happening. What doesn't add up though is why they would continue on out there, you know, without their shoes, without their provisions, uh, mostly socks, any provisions, right. right. Why would they would continue and move down this mountain unless like someone went after somebody and the rest of the group tried to follow? Sure. You know, and they were trying to trying to get them, you know, basically pulling them off or trying to keep them away. That's a possibility. And so everybody else ends up out here in the midst of everything. And it just happens to be that this all happened maybe late at night and they weren't ready. Uh, but, you know, like obviously things get heated. Things can happen. Right. And, you know, so maybe that's possible. You know, that's a possibility. You know, maybe that's that could be what happened. Maybe the conflict but, spreads, you know, to <clears throat> out to the the initial site, the cedar tree, right? Right. And, I mean, which is kind of down the mountain, but yeah. you have someone that's taken off after somebody and they're running away. They're trying to get, you know, they're booking it. You have right. everybody else that's like, hey, let's, you know, stop. We're, we're trying to help, whatever. They all go after them and then they all end up down there. That's why, you know, everything kind of, they have these all staggered footprints and stuff. Right. Then as they get closer, maybe they stopped and they, you know, started to like try and like, like we have, you know, we have to get back. We have to, you know, we, we can't be out here doing this, whatever. And that's when they realize, Hey, what are we doing? Right. And like, but, and maybe they get turned around and can't find their way back to camp at that point. And I mean, it's yeah. It's honestly, possible. it's just as it's just as plausible as any of the other explanations. It's maybe I, more so. I mean, it, it would it would make sense, um, you know, which would cause kind of that abrupt behavior and not having anything, like you know. And so, it kind of looking at it like that, like I said, at first I was a little kind of on the fence, but as as I started to kind of just you know discuss it a little bit, it's it does start to make a little bit more sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes sense in like a Dawson's Creek kind of way. You like to think that like, <laughs> you know, grown ass adults wouldn't behave in that way, but honestly, unfortunately I've, it's they real. Do. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and, and kind of, kind of furthering out, you know, I have, I have a lot more theories to kind of discuss too. Um, 
uh, just kind of keep it keep it going. You just keep things moving. Yeah. Espionage. Espionage. So espionage was another theory, basically stating that the hike was a cover up, um, so that some of the hikers, you know, me personally, I'm going to think of Igor. I'm going to think of uh, what is it? Uh, what whatever Thibodeau, uh, Bolgan, whatever. <laughs> sure. That guy, the 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 Grade Three guy. Yeah. I, I, you know, I I would look through it, but it, Russian names. These names are so difficult to expl- to pronounce and everything. So I fully apologize. I'm not <laughs> trying to dismiss anything. Right. But um, you know, so those would be the two I I would personally possibly say. You know, so again, with this theory, basically states that the hike was a cover up. Uh, so some of the hikers can meet up with the Western agents uh, to exchange information. Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, it, at this point it, it was, you know, you have this group of hikers, half of them are, or a majority of them might not be aware of what's actually happening. They're there because they want to, you know, be part of this. They want to get their grade three. They want to be able to teach, you know, teach their craft. They, you know, this is all of the, all of the people in this group aspire to do, to do so. Right. Right. So, you know, but basically at that point, um, you know, it ended up. It could have ended up causing a battle between the group. So another possible conflict. Uh, you know, so we had our previous one conflict in the group. You know, could have been caused by this or that, or you know, just a kind of a love the love thing within the group. This being by possible espionage, and then the group finding out. Okay, so the um, theory is that a few of them were were working espionage for the West. Against the Soviet Union, uh, correct. Yeah. Okay, so they were they would have been. That seems like a really out of the way place to meet your contact. It's it's extremely reaching at that point. I think, <laughs> <laughs> but what better place to do so than some you know remote location? Uh, exactly. You know. Um, that that one's far fetched, but to kind of throw it in there as as a poss- you know, another possibility. Sure, um, I don't I don't buy into that. I think it's there. I think again that is reaching. I think it's just trying to you know again just try and find some some reason for conflict that it could be causing, just like we were previously. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for either of them. It's just kind of you know writing a movie in the setting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the Mansi tribe, they believe in the number nine. So, to further that, um, basically the number nine playing a large role in everything that's happened. Everything that happens around this, this area, uh, you know, around what's now Dyatlov Pass. So, basically, according to the local Mansi legends, the number nine... Um, you know, it, it plays a big factor. So basically, a hundred years, uh, hundreds of years ago, there's a group of nine hunters that died on the exact same mountain uh, from mysterious circumstances. No one knows what happened. They were another group of you know, group of nine people, right? That died from just some mysterious happening. Um, in the '90s, an airplane carrying nine people crashed in the exact same area as well. Wow. Uh, so 
the Mansi tribe kind of believed that this is this area could be cursed or haunted by evil spirits. Sure, um, you know, causing this whole ordeal or this whole incident. Uh, I mean, which I mean, that's interesting. With like, right? That's, that's at it's, least a, a very strange coincidence. Extremely coincidental. Yeah, and it's very convenient that it's always the number nine. Um, you know, which again, it's not going to be so such widely known, but this Mansi tribe being very familiar with the area, right? Knowing, you know, being here for such a long period of time, knowing the history and everything, um, and being able to put these things together, you know, it would be not just coincidental, but I, I think at that point it'd be too coincidental. Yeah, there's too too many similarities. Yeah. There's definitely something weird there. For sure. Okay, so kind of going off that tip, like the Mansi tribe have like an insane an insane like an insanely rich history and folklore. Right? So right, like for sure. One of their big ones is the Mankthi, which is their version of the Yeti. Right. Of right. Bigfoot or it's, Sasquatch, it's right? their Sam Squanch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, a lot of them, when interviewed afterwards, were convinced that these these injuries, especially the ones in the ravine, the like crush injuries, the like crushed chest, the like ripped the high out tongue, impact. right? Yes, yep. that that was consistent with a Mankthi attack. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely possible. I mean, is you know, it's hard to buy into being crushed by snow and ice and things like that would have such a high impact that something much more larger, uh, a Bigfoot, a Yeti, uh, you know, would would be able to be be able to actually provide in this case. Yeah, I mean, and what I was saying earlier about the people of two different statures having similar injuries, right? Like. That makes a lot more sense when you think maybe it's a giant ape humanoid punching someone's face. Oh, I, yeah. Right? 100%. Um, so, funny that you bring it up because there was actually a photo that was taken uh, from one of the members, uh, Brignolas, uh, the, the one that I can't think of his full name right now. Sure. Uh, on January 30th. So, you know, two, two, what, two days before the whole incident went down. Yeah. Um, he took a picture of what appeared to be a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot or a Yeti um, that appeared to kind of follow or stalk the group. Okay, um, you know, clear as day. You can see him kind of basically right out of the right out of the wood, right? Yeah. Um, the local Mansi tribe, like you were saying, told a lot of stories of a lot of you know creatures similar that inhabited the area, um, and so basically to further solidify. Uh, even when the hikers were doing their um, that mock that mock paper, mm-hmm. uh, the Otorden paper, they the actually headline. wrote a small passage in the paper about a yeti. Yeah. So some believe that uh, either the group was scared because one came either too close to their campsite and then they just all booked it, right? Or that you know someone was being attacked. By by a yeti or Sam Squanch or yeah uh, Bigfoot or uh, uh, Mankthi or whatever yeah sure 
Yeah, the um, actual the actual headline on their mock paper, the headline was the snowmen are real. So <laughs> that pretty damn compelling to me, actually. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The fact that they wrote about it, he took a picture. Sure. And then two days later, like they're fucking booking it. I mean, you know, maybe who's who's not to say that, you know, this humanoid creature, um, you know, was maybe maybe it got a little territorial. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of people look at that photo and they say, well, that's obviously just a person standing in the tree line. But I I think it's just as compelling as any other Bigfoot photo that you see. I, I agree. Um, there was actually uh, some cryptozoologists that examined the photo, and uh, which is uh, titled Frame Number 17. Okay. Uh, which, again, we'll make sure that we actually get that out. Uh, but they determined that the overall stature and overall perfor- or portions, uh, proportions of the, this creature match that of a human. Okay. So, and that was, I mean, cryptozoologists that said it. Right, uh, but I think you know. In, in this case, the main fault with the claim was where are the tracks from this thing? Yeah, you're right. You know, it's going to have much larger tracks. There weren't even bear tracks. Yeah, you know. So let alone this big ass yeti, Sasquatch, Bigfoot. Sure. You know, anything similar. You know, where where are its tracks? Unless it treads so lightly, possibly, I guess. You know, being, uh, being, you know, living in this area, adapting and things like that, that maybe you didn't have real footprints, which I, you know, that, that again is reaching. Huh. That's super interesting though. Like maybe like the idea of a, a Yeti who, who evolves in this location, maybe has something like develops something similar to like a show, a snowshoe hair. Right. Like. Yeah, I mean that's that's possible, um, you know, and maybe they've they've developed this way to adapt, and it's a way to stalk their prey. Sure, you know, um, it, 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 like I said, it, it is it is a little bit a little bit reaching because I feel like being so large as I would imagine, at least you know, at least imagine them. Right, if it's capable of doing that kind of some damage, weight. Sure, right, there's going to be some heavy footedness to them. Yeah, I was going to um, say, like, if you're a proponent of the, you know, the flesh and blood Sasquatch, right, you would assume yeah. that it would leave footprints and that it wouldn't be it, that it wouldn't be as good at covering its tracks as the Soviet government would have been. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, no, I, I that. Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, yeah. I think of this as a physical, a physical form, right? This physical, you know, being essentially, it's going to make some form of tracks, but like, you know, like we were talking, unless it's somehow adapted enough living in this area that it's been able to either mask its tracks or, you know, create no footprints at all. Right. Basically able to, I mean, at that point it's going to be gliding on the snow. Like, well, like a, eh, like a, like a like a snowshoe hare does like it right but the there's still going to be some some uh you know some affected snow 
Sure. Right? You're going to be able to see some, at least some shift and in the snow in that area. But I imagine in an area like this, there's some, I mean, we already said there was some snowfall, right? Because some of it right, covered for the sure. tent. Which, right? So if you're yeah, leaving, true, like, true. if you're leaving maybe a, you know, a two inch, inch to two inch, right? Right. Then that could easily be covered by snowfall. Yeah, you're As right. As opposed you're right. to that's, people that's who possible. are trampling through, they're going to leave tracks that it's going to take a lot longer to cover with snowfall. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean you make a you make a really good point, um, and that's you know and that's that's definitely possible um, because you know even even with their tent was slightly under the snow just due to natural snowfall. Right. So I mean you have to think there there's probably multiple inches of snowfall over this. This, I mean, it's it's essentially, to you know, uh, well, eventually they end up finding the last bodies in May, right? And the search party starts in March, right? So, but the initial find you, was what, like, what, like twenty days or something after they were supposed to be back, uh, something like that. Yeah, it was like the twenty seventh or something, I believe, of February. Yeah, and they're supposed to be back on like the thirteenth. See, so, so that's like almost that's like two weeks of snowfall, right? Yeah, I, yeah. That's, I mean, it'd be easy for a lot to be covered up. I kind of love and am super creeped out by the idea of a snowshoe yeti. <laughs> I've never heard that ever. I mean, all things adapt due sure. to their surroundings, of right? Course. So, and that's why a lot of you know a lot of animals and uh, reptiles and things like that are the way that they are because they've adapted to their surroundings. Yeah, of course. And, you know, and I know we've talked about this even with like the wolf girl. Uh-huh. You know, uh talking about being brought up in this uh you know with these these wolves and stuff and basically developing. Yeah. Uh do their surroundings and I think that's you know that's a definite possibility. Yeah. That you know, and just like any any type of animal there's so many different things. I mean, you know, think of, think of like lizards that can literally glide on sand making no movement or anything like that a lot of animals that can actually do so yeah um but this is in you know in the snow there's also going to be it's a lot going to be it's going to be a lot more packed yeah um frozen you know it's going to be a lot more solid so yeah it i don't i don't yeah i i think you've swayed me i don't think it'd be out of out of the realm of possibility for them to be able to adapt and uh, you know be able to actually move over the sand without or the snow, the snow without yeah. <laughs> uh, you know being being detected or having any previous footprints and especially with all the snowfall that came afterwards would definitely mask any of that. I mean, I didn't sway you. That was your idea. <laughs> That's awesome. right, but I kind of went back <laughs> went back on myself. There. You did. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's I I think that's uh I, I think. Honestly, I find that more compelling than a lot of the other theories up to this point. Yeah, me too. Me too. But I put a lot of credence in the existence of Sasquatch in general in well, locations course, yeah. all over the world. So I, it wouldn't shock me at all if, you know, the Manxy was a real creature. Yeah. That, I mean, these places are so isolated, there'd be no way of knowing. Oh, I, yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, this is... Especially this mount, this mountain that they're on, being such a you know a difficult just a climb. area and like an extremely difficult climb. Yeah, I mean that's why they're on this this specific pass because all these requirements for their certification, their grade three, requires them to go through 
You have so many miles of difficult um, terrain, almost uncharted territory, difficult terrain. Yep. You know, extreme weather conditions. You know, all these different factors that are playing into this. Yeah. Right? And all those factors can be found in this crazy location. Without like, a doubt. Yeah. No, I don't want to get too deep on Sasquatch because we absolutely will be doing a series on Bigfoot and Sasquatch at some point. And oh, yes. I'm very yes, pumped for that. But that's not this. So I Correct. But not to not to dismiss it, because now I really like that theory. I do too. I really do too. So one other one that I want to discuss here. Alright. And this to me is one of the bigger, most compelling theories uh, okay. to me. Alright. UFOs. UFOs. Aliens. Aliens. Alright. So, basically, at this point, uh, on February 1st, there was another group of hikers only a couple of miles away from those at the Dyatlov Pass uh, incident that, that occurred. There was another group of hikers, um, and like I said, just a few miles away. I mean, it's the handful of miles. Right. You know, it's not like they were an extreme amount of, uh, amount of distance or anything like that away, but they claimed to see lights in the sky over the mountain on February 1st, the night of the incident. Uh, and some of the locals in the area also reported seeing bright orb-like shapes and lights in the sky as well in that same area. Now, with the Mansi tribe, they also confirmed that this was common practice. They saw this a lot in this area okay. uh, of the Ural Mountains. So basically, to kind of uh, kind of further solidify, uh, so the lead investigator, which we had talked about a little bit ago of the Dyatlov uh, Pass incident, yeah, um, he eventually stated years later after the incident that the Soviet government made him keep quiet about anything related to supposed extraterrestrial involvement and keep it out of his reports. Yes. So you know, with that. Obviously, the government is in, like we've talked about before. Of course. Yeah, the government trying to keep everything hush-hush, especially when it comes to aliens and UFOs. That's going to be, you know, kind of one of those bigger, you know, this is... is this is something that needs to be like kept under under lock and key. You have to make sure not to put this in anything, you know, no speculation or anything like that. Even though there's all these reports coming in of the exact same incident. Right. No, like, and the Soviet government was, was notorious for their sort of underground obsession with UFOs with, because obviously this, during this time, this is like the height of the space race, right? 59. Oh, of course. Yeah. They're like, they're, they're most, you can assume that they're looking for every advantage they could get in the space race. Right. So if, right. if a UFO is spotted over Soviet territory, they don't want anyone else to know about that. They, they want, you know, they want first dibs basically. Yeah, I, I, I agree for sure. Um, you know, and one thing one thing that was noted was that uh, there were actual burn marks found near the bottom of the slope mm-hmm. 
and on the tops of some of the pine trees yeah. in in the area, right around right around that uh, that kind of the cedar tree area. Um, you know, there were there were burn marks, and uh, some of the pine trees, the tops of them were charred and blackened. Yeah. Um, you know, also worth noting that some of the uh, you know the state of some of the bodies that that were found were found in what kind of resembled uh think think of things like cattle mutilation yes and things like that um also the radiation in the area yeah would be highly suggestive of alien act or ufo activity yeah no there's so there's also you know there's generally a rumor attached to this that there's like a secret um possible nuclear testing facility in the area which instantly makes it which instantly makes it a target for UFOs. UFOs are constantly spotted near nuclear facilities. Yeah. That would put them in yeah, the I th- area. I think all the all the accounts of radiation on some of the bodies, and it wasn't all the bodies. It was two of them, right? Uh right, it was it was a couple of, a couple of the bodies. It was two or three. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so that that to me, I think, speaks a lot more in this case than any other possible theory. I'm still not for, I'm still not fully clear on what the connection is between ionized radiation and aliens. You know, I would like to think, <laughs> due to these spacecrafts, they're emitting some form of, uh, you know, think of think of like just a uh, you know. Uh, carbon monoxide and things like that. You know, think of, of any type of exhaust or anything like that. Okay, I would like to think of any type of spacecraft could it could produce some form of radioactive exhaust. Okay, um, you know, and even whether it's whether it's light, whether it's uh, you know very heavy, depending on the area. If it's a very um, frequented area, which the Mansi tribe stated that this area is, sure, they sure. see these lights and things like that all the time. Um. You know, so I, I would think that that would that would, at least to me, I, I think that's what I would chalk it up to. See, I constantly um, hear, I just constantly hear that connection with UFO stories, like, well, there was radiation here, so duh, aliens, right? right? Oh, and so there's, like, and there's so many movies that that really play on that whole that that whole idea too, right? See, in my mind, because I'm I still have never been sold on the connection. So what what that means to me is. The fact that radiation was found in the area leads me to believe, or it lends more credence to the idea of a nuclear testing facility in the area, which lends yeah. more credence to a UFO showing up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I'm not dismissing that. Right. I think that that's definitely, definitely possible for sure. I mean, you might be right. Uh, Aliens might be spraying radiation all over the place. I just, I don't know. And that I mean, honestly, like I said, just personally, that's that's kind of what I think. Just, uh, just I mean, obviously, I don't know. You don't know. You know. I mean, yeah. You know, again, we have we have exhaust that our cars and things like that. You know, admit or produce. Um, I would I would think you know some type of alien spacecraft, UFO, and uh, you know unidentified aerial phenomenon, things like that. Whatever, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, could produce some type of radioactive sure waste or yeah um you know like i said exhaust in this case 
It's I, um, I guess it's just always been weird to me because you think like the progress that we've made in aeronautics and in space travel has had nothing to do with nuclear power. Right? That right. that's not yeah, the way sure. that's not the way we've gone. So I guess it's just odd to me to assume that like someone far more advanced a civilization from another world that was far more advanced and advanced enough to reach earth right mm-hmm. maybe they went down the nuclear path with their space travel maybe they're completely uh, immune to it maybe radiation is like uh you know it's like breathing maybe it's like oxygen for them um, right exactly that's mm-hmm. you know it's <laughs> it's it's a stretch but um you know that that was that was just kind of one of those one of those things and maybe it's due to mainstream media and seeing you know accounts of radiation uh linked to ufos and aliens and things like that that gives me that kind of perspective or that idea um you know but i think uh you know this i guess you know without without that being a thing yeah. You know, think of these bright lights in the sky, these orbs of light, these charred trees, uh, you know, this basically this blackened base of this area, you know, would suggest some form of craft, uh, some form of craft. Right. Something yeah. that would because, I mean, you're not going to have forest fire, first of all, in this area. No, it's not going to happen not this time of year for sure. Um, you know, and any, you know, anything like that. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a, that's a difficult one to really kind of try and debunk any other possibility of it being. I mean, unless it was a Russian or a Soviet aircraft landing. I suppose. (laughs) Right. I mean, in the middle of this mountain, I I, guess. I I mean, special forces, right? I just, it's, yeah, we don't know. The charred treetops scream UFO to me, though. They really do. That's that's classic. Yeah. Right. But, like, one point I wanted to hit on the radiation. Like, you, you also have to keep in mind that Russia is where plutonium comes from. Like, okay. Uranium is everywhere in Russia. Like, it's, in the ground everywhere like they okay. mine uranium that's where like 95% of the world's plutonium comes from is Russian uranium mines like I'm, at that point Geiger counters might just be standard issue for mountain rescue teams <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> probably yeah like yeah, I mean, especially in the in this area, yeah, and, and like you said, with the possibility of a nuclear, you know, some type of nuclear plant or facility, something yeah. nearby, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it does add it does add a lot um, that I think, you know, and, and then try not to dismiss from what I want it to be, right? <laughs> but <laughs> and so going back to first of all the the picture you had mentioned. The picture that was taken of the bright orbs, yeah, yeah, with the flashing light. So it's most common interpreted that that picture falls under the theory of UFOs. Absolutely. And and I wanted I wanted to say something earlier, but I wanted to keep on you know where we were at. Yeah. But I personally 
I think, I think, you know, and there were a couple of additional pictures that were taken too. Um, you know, that aren't quite as detailed as the, the one. And the one shows literally like two ball, two giant, you know, two like bright orbs of light and then a flash. Right. Across it. So, you know, possible explosion? Probably not. Yeah. My thing with that is, they it was documented in their journals that the photographs were taken on a tripod. Right? So, any motion in any, like, streaking... Is going to create a motion blur like that, right? Right. But the... You can... You can rule out the idea that the camera was moving to create the blur because they were all yeah. taken on a tripod. So whatever caused that streaking of the light was something was the light actually moving. Moving. Correct. Yeah. Yep. That's where that's where I definitely believe it adds a lot more you know, adds a lot more to the idea of UFOs. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. So is that is that the one you lean toward in this UFOs? Personally, I think so. Um, you know, I I think I think at this point the possible uh, Yeti and UFOs I think are probably going to be my two main uh, my two main most compelling theories. Nice. Um, you know, obviously without without knowing for sure, of course. But I think aliens are where I where I kind of sway to a little bit more. Uh, UFOs specifically not just aliens because another thing when we were talking about them uh walking away from the camp they're all staggered and they start to come in one uniform line so think of someone being in an entranced state yes okay so think uh and this is something i i completely forgot to mention but think of them being in like in this entranced state um you know maybe they were going towards this craft maybe aliens came out of this craft had landed and you know and that's what caused the whole incident maybe you know and i don't want to get into like maybe they were trying to study or maybe they were trying to figure out whatever uh-huh you know but i think of this you know because to me that that where everyone kind of goes in this one single almost single file line just i think there's a lot more to it than just becoming more uh calm and things like that um because obviously in that state you're going to still be frantic people i doubt highly doubt everybody's going to be walking in a single file line sure you know without some cause okay and you know playing off of the the whole uh, the whole ufo uh you know theory you know i think personally that is that is part of that story what happened to them what was done whatever else i have no idea i i love the picture you're painting so like they something happens maybe the ufo goes low over freaks them out they bust out of the tent they're scattered they're panicked they're running away right and then uh-huh. all of a sudden boom alien influence they go into like a zombified state and just fall into a single file line going toward the toward the craft and i think that more time was probably i think with with you know obviously with the people i think obviously they probably lived for longer than you know 
is suggested or theorized. Um, you know, maybe being uh, maybe they were abducted. You know, it I, honestly, I, it's like I said, that's the part that to me I, I can't quite figure out. Right. And I can't even quite theorize, you know, other than maybe they were abducted and, you know, after that point they were sent back and maybe they were in this still entranced state or maybe at that point they had no rec- recollection of what had happened and they're already too, you know, too deep, like too deep at that point. Um, and then so, you know, you have the couple that are trying to go back and, you know, you have the couple that are venturing further into the forest, whatever. Um, you know, like I said, that's that's the part that just trying to figure out what what that kind of means or what would cause that, right? But maybe it is that just no recollection of what they had actually had done. Maybe they don't even know how they got there. Sure, you know, after after they had seen this craft, after they all jetted and you know, and then became entranced. Maybe they were abducted. Maybe they, you know, um, you know, this life form of this alien life form did something. Um, you know, and then they forgot where they were. They didn't know where they were. Right. They just kind uh, of. And then you have. They just kind of come to, and right. They they have no idea why they're they are where they are, and they do their best that they the best they can to survive, not knowing that their all their provisions in their camp are like four hundred meters, you know, back up the ridge. Exactly, which is why you have. The three that tried to tried to go back and locate camp, you have the one you know one person that probably climbed the tree just so they could try and find out where it was, right? Um, and so you know it that's possible for sure. Interesting. Yeah, I like aliens. I like aliens for this. I don't. Okay. Here's my thing. What though. Is, I was gonna say, what is what is your actual? idea on the subject i like aliens i like i like a yeti for it but my whole thing with this case and it's beyond frustrating is i think because of the utter incompetence associated with the soviet government with their investigators like they were notoriously horrible record keepers they were even worse at revealing information because of all that i don't i don't think we'll ever have an answer i don't even i don't even think i can lean toward a specific theory because i to be completely honest i don't we'll never know i don't trust any of the details at all and that you you, you bring up a really good point um you know they waited 30 years to give any type of details yeah at that point they could all be fabricated they could all be just this you know, just pieced together by the by the you know soviet government or whatever else to try and sway people into try you know tr- figuring out things but ultimately you know maybe there was some underlying like underlying uh you know thing that went on yeah that they're trying to sway people from actually figuring out right and maybe none of these details are real at all okay the just like the the way that the government is locked down right and like the they didn't bother keeping good records it just wasn't part of their 
It wasn't part. It wasn't part of their normal practice. Yeah. basically, it, it right. just it wasn't important. Like they they would have come across a thing like this and gone like, oh, nine dead. End of records. <laughs> yeah, like I, that's yeah, and that uh, that doesn't surprise me either. You know. Yeah. So I I just I love this. I love this story, but I love to look at it almost like uh, almost like a fiction. You know what I mean? Like, okay. and I love it as like a thought experiment. But I just do not trust any of the details, so I don't I don't really know what happened. Unfortunately, nine so, people lost their lives, and I I don't think we'll ever know exactly what happened to them. I mean, I agree. I doubt we will ever know. I. I highly doubt we'll ever know i don't think anything will actually ever surface that's going to give us a full explanation yeah but do you discount the investigators that spent all the time uncovering the bodies and the coroners that you know uh were able to judge the different uh types of injuries and things like that and try to piece you know piece the scene together at that point i'm sure the people that were involved had you know had the best intentions but what I don't trust is the records kept about what they actually did and what they actually found. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's possible. Yeah. Because that could have been manipulated and altered as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for all we know, okay. the original records of this event were tossed into an incinerator in 1965. And then it became such this like folkloric event. You know, like I said earlier, before we started, this is like, this is like Russia's JFK assassination. Like right. it's become yeah. like a massive thing. It's the, it's like the center of their conspiracy theory world. So, so do you think that's why they, they waited that, you know, the I think 30 they, plus years or whatever to release any type of information? Yeah. I think when the Soviet union collapsed, they were like, there's, how is there, they were probably the new provisional government. They were probably like, how is there no, how are there no records kept of this event that everyone talks about Let's thirty give years later? Some, we have some to. Type yes, of, we got to right. give them something. Okay. okay. Yeah. I don't disagree. I definitely don't disagree. Um, but if we take the story yeah, on its face, right? If we, if we just, even as just a thought experiment, if we say all this that we know about it, supposedly know about it is the actual thing that happened. I gotta say, I like aliens. Yeah. If I was I writing agree. the movie, it would be aliens. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and, and now that, it, now that you're, you know, talking about the possibility of none of it actually being factual, uh, you know, it's it's starting to make me question <laughs> what I actually think as well. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. No, but I I agree. I I think ultimately I love the idea of aliens, and I think you know, with that being such a you know such a very in depth theory, um, and so much to back it up, including you know accounts of people seeing these lights and multiple different people another group that's a few miles away experiencing these lights along with you know this uh this uh small well with the locals seeing them as well yeah 
you know, I think that adds a little bit, at least a little bit of a foundation to it. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, I think so too. And there have like, you know, there are, there have been hundreds of UFO sightings over the Ural Mountains, like in over the decades. Right, for sure. So it it's a fairly common common thing in that area in general. So, yeah. If we, if we take the story on its face, I'm with you. Aliens. But, you know, kind of taking it for what it is and who it is. Yeah. Uh, who's providing the information then. Yeah, I I, I think uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm with you there. I think that's definite a definite possibility. Yeah. But I think and I think I'm going to still remain aliens. Yeah. Just because it takes away from how fun it is. <laughs> it does. I'm sorry. It's not. I mean, this isn't fun, but still, <laughs> you know, it takes away from. <laughs> awesome. I guess the the seriousness and uh, some type of an explanation to be able to give your listeners. And, I mean, you know, families and things like that just as something. Right. Look, It's been 70 years. It's not too soon. It's okay. The speculation is fun. <laughs> You're right, yeah. The speculation is fun. Yeah. It is. That's why we're here. Exactly. And there I mean there's thousands of, you know, stories told exactly like this, trying to figure it out and no one will ever know. But so I think our general conclusion is if the details are real, aliens. It's aliens, right. Big if. It's not it's just some some government cover up that uh yeah due to no lack of information if you will yeah basically the full conclusion is big if true <laughs> aliens <laughs> all right well i think that uh wraps up episode 14 Love pass thank you thank you thank you from the bottom of our weird possibly alien maybe ghostly probably cryptid hearts for listening we absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on we want to get to know each and every one of you so please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on instagram and facebook at campfire t-o-t-s-a-u on twitter and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown.